Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Unfinished Tales, our class on <coughs> the meta-history of Goadriel. Um, I uh, first wanted to uh, apologize in advance. I don't know. I've uh, had this... Uh, I have this uh, cold that I have inherited here from my family. I made it through my Chaucer class last night, still with my voice. I hope to do so again tonight. Uh, but uh, there is a <clears throat> non-zero chance that uh, my voice will give out. So if I start getting all froggy, uh, I, I ask your pardon in advance. Um, tonight, we're going to talk about uh, Goadriel. Um, I'm not going to pretend we're talking about Goadriel and Celeborn as if the two of them are equal, or as if it's their story. It's not their story. This is the story of Goadriel. Celeborn has at most a bit part in this story. Um, and it's actually, you know, that in itself, I just sort of say something about that before we uh, kind of dismiss it and put it aside. Um, it's to actually, I think, kind of unusual Um that is to say how, how imbalanced the marriage of Goadriel and Celeborn is. Um, and I, 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 that is, I mean, I'm trying to think of other examples um, in Tolkien where we get something that is as imbalanced as their marriage seems to be. You could say Thingol and Melian, but, you know, even there, Thingol at least is uh, is is you know, plays serious roles. I mean, he's seriously outclassed by his wife, of course. You know, as Erica says, Celeborn married up. Absolutely. He's one of the prime examples of the people who married up. But rarely, when we get a story in which the man marries up, which, of course, we get many times in Tolkien, rarely thereafter does the man who married up um, <laughs> serve as such a complete dead weight in the marriage as poor Celeborn uh, seems to uh, seems to uh, to have, uh, or seems to become. Uh, it's I I I find their relationship a little comical uh, in this way. Uh, you know, Diego says in a way Aragorn and Arwen, given that we know you know we get almost nothing about Arwen and all this Aragorn lore. Yet Diego, but see, but that balances the scales, right? Um, that is to say, he's marrying up already, so she doesn't have to do anything. I mean, she can be she can be practically inanimate, and yet he's gotta he's gotta you know pull himself up pretty far uh, to be on the same level as him. If he didn't, if he weren't as big a figure as he is, it's it's the same thing with Baron, right? I mean, if he weren't as big a figure as he is, then he would be Caliborn, right? Um, so, uh, so he has to he has to be pretty much the the sum of the show um, if uh, if he's ever even going to be able to be named in the same in the same uh, zip code as his uh, as his wife. Um, but uh, anyway, <laughs> Diego says Caliborn's a trophy husband. Yeah, it seems to be. Uh, but uh, but uh, um, what a uh, I don't know. Not 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 su not such a prize. Sarah says Goadriel was tired of overachievers. Yeah, especially with her other options. I mean, it's it, again. I, I don't want to. I just I don't want to just make fun of it. But uh, I couldn't help but think about it in that passage where we get the conversation between. Uh, uh, Galadriel and Celebrimbor, the sort of the, the, you know, one of the two different stories of the Alessar that we get at the end. And uh, Celebrimbor mentioning, you know, uh, 
yeah, you know, I kind of, you know, uh, threw my hat in the ring there, but you chose uh, Kelleborn instead of me. And it's, you know, I'm reading that, and I'm like, well, that's a little bit awkward, right? In retrospect, would she do that one again? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yale does point out that... Uh, Yali just point out that uh, he's the grandson of Elmo, uh, and that does count for something. I, I, yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I, I com- completely agree that uh, being related to Elmo does certainly get you something. Um, Chuck says, it seems that Tolkien never really settled on who Celeborn was. Certainly true. We get lots of different versions, and we'll talk about them a little bit, um, and what his re- relationship to Galadriel was. No, you're absolutely right, Chuck, but... In every single version, he's way out of her. He's way out of her league. Um, we do get uh, we do get him increasing in stature steadily over the course of their stories. But then again, she increases in stature over the course of our stories. So she is still uh, the the disparity between them. I think is really quite consistent as we go through. Um, but anyway. Uh, I, I, um, I, I don't want to just dump on poor Kelleborn, but as I say, I, and I, it seems to me, you know, from reading the stories, it, the stories are really primarily about her. They're not really centrally about him. Um, so, uh, you know, I, we're going to focus mostly on Galadriel here because that seems to me where Tolkien's focus primarily was uh, in these stories. Um, let's see. Let me. Uh, okay. Yeah. No, we're good. Um, uh, yeah, Brian makes a good point. And Brian, I think that's an excellent point and a good counterbalancing to this. Um, Brian says, is it more interesting that she even does marry? Given her pride in what we're going to talk about, it's worth noting that she even seeks that kind of companionship. You're right, Brian. I think that would have been... Um, <clears throat> you know, one could one could almost say that there's there's a kind of humility, not just in her marrying somebody who's a comparative loser, but somebody who... But marrying anyone at all, right? Um, joining herself to a companion that way. Um, that surely it would have been a bad sign had she held herself aloof um, and not, you know, whether it's because she didn't consider anyone her peer or whatever, you know, was just sort of interested in solo mastery. Um, that would have made her into more of a Melkor figure, right? So I, I, I agree, Brian. I think that we can... Um, it seems I'm confident in saying, looking at both her story and you know putting it in the context of the other stories that we see in the Silmarillion tradition, I'm certainly willing to say that her getting married at all was probably a good sign. That is, uh, 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 says something really uh, pretty good uh, um, about her. Um, but. Uh, uh, so anyway, Brian, I think that's a that is a very good point. Um, now, I want to start here, um, it, it, sort of explaining, uh, or, or at least pointing to the title of the class here today. Um, but I want to begin by looking at the first paragraph. Do you notice what happened there in that first paragraph? This is Christopher Tolkien, of course. There is no part of the history of Middle-earth more full of problems than the story of Galadriel and Celeborn, and it must be admitted that there are severe inconsistencies embedded in the traditions, or, to look at the matter from another point of view, that the role and importance of Galadriel only emerged slowly, and that her story underwent continual refashionings. Now, um, you'll remember that I talked about this in the, our very first class on Unfinished Tales, uh, this, uh, this difference between looking along 
and looking at something. Um, sort of immersing yourself into that, you know, into the secondary belief uh, of that world and discussing it from within the framework of that sub-creation and stepping back and looking at the sub-creative process itself, looking at the story as a sub-creative process rather than immersing ourselves, as I said, sort of investing that secondary belief. Um, Notice that that's exactly what Christopher Tolkien describes here. The first time, the first part of that sentence is describing the looking along part, right? Um, The story of Gladwell and Celeborn, it must be admitted that there are severe inconsistencies embedded in the traditions. That is looking at their story from within the framework of Middle-earth. If we take the different writings of Tolkien over time as being different traditions handed down within the Middle-earth tradition, and they contradict each other, right? So some people have handed down some stories about uh, Goadriel and Celeborn, and others have handed down others, and these different stories that are handed down are simply irreconcilable. That's that's the looking along version, uh, you know, looking at it from within the framework of Middle-earth. Or, if we step back and look at it uh, from a critical standpoint, that is, uh, from the standpoint of uh, looking at the subcreative process itself and the process of Tolkien's writing over the course of his life, we see that the role and importance of Galadriel only emerged slowly and that her story underwent continual refashionings. Um, that second approach, the looking at approach, is by and large the one that we're going to be doing here today. And the primary reason for this is that the substance of the Galadriel story does undergo so many changes that are that are that are f- quite significant um, that it's there isn't any one sort of single thing to look along. Um, we're going to kind of dip in, and I, I I want to be you know I've kind of and you know people could break this down in different ways I think, but um, the I, I've taken the material that Christopher Tolkien gave us and I've broken it down into four different sort of stories, four different versions, fundamentally, I think, of the Galadriel story. And so I want to consider each one of those in turn. They're not all of the same length, of course, um, but I want to consider each one of those four stories in turn. And when we're doing that, of course, we can do some looking along. You know, we, we can kind of uh, you know, immerse ourselves in it a bit, and I, I, want to, I want to take some time to see what is the story there, how does, how does that version of the Galadriel story work? What is that story about? What do we learn about her? What kind of a character is she in that story? Um, But the overall scheme of what we're going to be doing is going to be more of the looking at thing. As we look at Tolkien coming back and revisiting um, this story again and again over the course of the later part of his life. But of course, I want to begin by emphasizing the later part of his life. When we've been looking at the, uh, the, the, the earlier stuff, especially the Tuor and Turin stuff, we spent uh, you know, a certain amount of time going back and looking at the ancient history, ancient within the framework of Tolkien's create, uh, sub-creative process, um, that is, the versions of the stories that he wrote decades before. And looking at the way, in particular, with Turin, we spent some time looking at the way in which the Turin story was developing over time, and the status that the particular text we were reading sort of had among all of those traditions. With Galadriel, um, although it is really complicated, and there are severe inconsistencies and all of those things, um, in one sense, it's simpler than the, tu- than the Turin story. Galadriel's story 
is a Lord of the Rings story. She is a Lord of the Rings character, first and foremost. Galadriel is not in the Silmarillion material before the Lord of the Rings. So, you know, we can go back to the very first story that that Tolkien wrote and find the beginning of the Tuor story. We can trace the development of the Turin story from way, way, way back and all and how it changed all the way through his reconsiderations of the Silmarillion material. But this is not true of Goadriel. Goadriel is just flat not there. She doesn't play any role in the Silmarillion story. She's not alluded to in the Silmarillion story. She is not part of Finway's family tree prior to the Lord of the Rings. Um, so that is one thing um, that is one thing to keep in mind. That is a framework to keep in mind. That when we're talking about the history of Galadriel and Celeborn, we're not reconciling stuff from the Book of Lost Tales back in the teens and twenties. We're not talking about how that story changes. Instead, <clears throat> one of the things that we're getting here, and I'm just going <clears> to <throat> sort of mention this as an aside. We're not going to really kind of think about this in any really big picture sense. But in the story of Galadriel, one of the things that we're getting is looking at at an example not of how the Silmarillion material comes in and helps to shape and form the Lord of the Rings, which is one thing I think that you know often we tend to, to look at and think about. It's one of the reasons why the history of Middle-earth is so much fun. But um, the ways in which the Lord of the Rings itself impacts the Silmarillion material backwards. Um, and there are a number of things that really enter into the tradition um, from the Lord of the Rings, and not just enter into the tradition, but end up going back and informing that tradition and even altering it in some significant ways. And I think, as I say, Galadriel is a pretty big example of this. So, one thing to keep in mind, one corollary of this fact, that is, a corollary of the fact that Galadriel is a Lord of the Rings character and is not she is not a pre-Lord of the Rings existing Silmarillion character, one of the corollaries of this is that this other stuff that we're getting is not backstory, it's spin-off. That is, when we read these stories about Galadriel and Celeborn, it is tempting. Um, I, I know that when I first read Unfinished Tales, I received this stuff about uh, Galadriel and Celeborn as, like, here is the real story. Like, here's what really lay behind the Lord of the Rings. Right? You know, th this is stuff that's not... We don't learn about it in the Lord of the Rings, but this is what, what's, what, what was really underneath it, what was really sort of behind it historically and thematically. That's not true. Um, it's a spin-off of it. The, the, the cause and effect goes in the opposite direction. The Lord of the Rings doesn't spring from this. This isn't the backstory to the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings is the origin, and this stuff is the spin-off of that. Um, and we'll look at some examples of, uh, of exactly what I mean by that. But, as I said, four major strands, four major versions of the Galadriel story that we're going to focus on. Um, first, the very brief account that Christopher Tolkien gives at the beginning of this chapter, um, of the, the conception of Galadriel, which seems to lie behind the Lord of the Rings conception. That's story number one, and it's not very fully developed. Story number two is the development of that story in the Lord of the Rings period. Remember, in, again, in that first class when I did an overview of the Unfinished Tales and we were looking at that period of time when the Lord of the Rings was in publication and when he was going back and, and uh, um, writing a, a, you know, a, a bunch, you know, sort of filling in a bunch of holes and, uh, and, and giving some further explanations. The Numenor stuff was written in this time. Um, this is the uh, this is the time when he, so this is the, in, during that time we get version two of the Galadriel story uh, that we're going to look at tonight. Later on, in the in the sixties, in the late sixties, 
he comes back to the Galadriel and Celeborn story again, and he tells the Galadriel story quite differently. We get then what I would call the third version of the Galadriel story then. And then the fourth version comes way at the end of his life. Christopher Tolkien says it was written by Tolkien in the last month of his life. So weeks before his death, he wrote the fourth version of the Galadriel story. Um, and, uh, and it's a complete reconsideration of almost everything. Uh, and of course we'll talk about that. So, um, that's uh, <coughs> that's sort of an overview of what we're going to be looking at. Now let's um, let's go ahead and dig in to uh, the first version. Story number one. Thus, at the outset, it is certain that the earlier conception was that Galadriel went east over the mountains from Beleriand alone, before the end of the first age, and met Celeborn in his own land of Lorien. This is explicitly stated in unpublished writing, and the same idea underlies Galadriel's words to Frodo in The Fellowship of the Ring 2.7, where she says of Celeborn that he has dwelt in the West since the days of dawn, and I have dwelt with him years uncounted, for ere the fall of Nargothrond or Gondolin I passed over the mountains, and together through ages of the world we have fought the long defeat. In all probability, Celeborn was in this conception a Nandarin elf, that is, one of the Teleri who refused to cross the Misty Mountains on the great journey from Quivienen. Okay, um, now notice, Christopher Tolkien is citing that passage from the Fellowship of the Ring here in order to give evidence to support his, uh, his, his assertion here that this is the basic story. Again, we don't get many details about this, but I think that's actually one of the things that's uh, striking about this version of the story in the first place. There aren't many details to be given about this. Um, what we get is her as isolated from almost all of the history. She plays almost no major. She plays no major role in the major Silmarillion stories. Ere the fall of Gondolin or, or of Nargothrond or Gondolin, I passed over the mountains. Right. So she crossed over. Uh, from Beleriand into Eriador, presumably from Eriador uh, into the Vale of Anduin to Lorien, where she met Celeborn. So she retreated from Beleriand, played no part in the latter history of Beleriand, and uh, <clears throat> um, and has just been hanging out here with Celeborn, doing um, we don't know what, <clears throat> fighting the long defeat which is a wonderful phrase, and very evocative, but not very specific. Um, now, first of all, Celeborn, we, this is one of the few times, you know, one of the times we will pause to address Celeborn. Celeborn is here <clears throat> quite minor. I know that people find the uh, particular subdivisions of elves kind of confusing. Um, it's... Uh, it, it's... Uh, not that hard once you get used to it. Um, you've the, the the main issue is you've got you know the first division right the Valar go and they call the elves hey come to Valinor with us. Most of the elves say okay great we'll come. Some of the elves say no thank you we'll stay here. Those are the Avari the unwilling. Um, those are pretty much out of the picture. Nobody talks about them. Um, they are uh, they are ir irrelevant to the story. There are the three kindreds of elves who are the three that come with them. The biggest are the are the Teleri, and they're the ones that keep getting subdivided. They're the ones that confuse everybody. But again, it's pretty simple. What happens is along the way, 
a bunch of them decide, actually, I'm just going to hang out here. I'm not interested in going any further to Valinor. So the Nandor are the elves who stopped before crossing, before crossing the Misty Mountains. They didn't get any further than the Misty Mountains. They stayed on the east side of the Misty Mountains. They're like, it's nice here. We like it. We're going to stay here in Greenwood and Lorien and, uh, and, and, and just kind of hang out. You know, go, you have fun in Valinor, guys. And off they went. And then there are some who made it almost, who made it all the way to the shore. And, uh, uh, and those are, those are Elway, Elway's people, also called Thingol. Those are called the Grey Elves. Those are the Sindar. They are higher in culture than the Nandor, because, primarily because of the influence of Melian and of Thingol, who had himself visited Valinor. Now, the other two kindred, the Noldor and the Vanyar, both made it, all of them, apparently, uh, made it over to, uh, to, to Rivendell. So you've got Rivendell. Did I say Rivendell? Valinor. A little different from Rivendell. We'll get to Rivendell later on. Um, made it all the way over to Valinor. Um, so you've got the Teleri, who are the ones of the third kindred who made it to Valinor, the Sindar, who are those who made it almost but not quite, and the Nandor, who gave up pretty quickly. But all of them are still in the category of elves who started off on the journey. Um, yeah, Roy, the green elves, I did leave out the green elves. The green elves are Nandor, who stopped at the beginning, like apparently Caliborn and his people. But later on, they were like, eh, let's go to Beleriand anyway. So they ended up crossing the mountains and making it into Beleriand later on. Um, they are called the green elves. Uh, no big deal. So, okay. But this means that Celeborn, in this conception, is pretty far down the down the totem pole, um, down the hierarchy of elves here. <clears throat> Again, it's a pretty significant marrying up for Celeborn. But, um, but to me, the more significant thing is the way in which Galadriel is isolated from the whole plot. And by the whole plot, I mean the whole history of Middle-earth to this point. Um, because she does not describe herself as having taken part in anything. And frankly, this reflects the role that we've seen her play in The Lord of the Rings so far. That is, none. She doesn't come in to The Lord of the Rings so far. Um, you know, as if, if you've ever read um, John Ratliff's History of the Hobbit, or if you've read the History of the Lord of the Rings series, that is volumes uh, 6, 7, and 8 of the... Um, of... Uh, of the History of Middle-Earth series by Christopher Tolkien. Um, that is, if you've read the books which sort of go through the draft processes and, you know, Tolkien's writing process as he's um, conceiving these stories and developing them, you'll know that he wasn't one for thinking very far ahead. He loved to plan and make notes and outlines and things, but he only did that, you know, he only sort of cast his nets a little bit ahead, got up to there, and then usually didn't have any idea what was going to come next. Um, so, you know, when he's writing The Hobbit, when they leave Bag End at the end of chapter one, he has no idea um, what's going to happen. And where, where, I mean, he knows they're going to the Lonely Mountain and stuff, but who's going to kill Smaug? What goes on? I mean, that's, you know, Bard gets invented, like, in the very chapter that Smaug dies and all that kind of thing. Um, you know, there's the famous letter that he wrote to W.H. Auden describing uh, the encounter at Bree and the Fellowship of the Ring when there was, like, this guy, this, like, Strider guy who was called Trotter at the time. Um, Strider is really a better name than Trotter, you have to admit. But anyway, um, and, 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 you know, Tolkien had no idea who he was or what his backstory was. This is, this is the way that Tolkien tends to write. Therefore, Galadriel 
gets no references. Um, we know, we'll be looking at this in a few minutes, that she is later on going to be said to be involved, intimately involved, um, with the entire Third Age of Middle-earth, with also the First and Second Age of Middle-earth, um, that she is going to be one of the dominant figures in that entire history. Um, in The Lord of the Rings, we have no hint of that. That is, not until we get to Lothlorien and meet her, and she's pretty cool. But before that, we've had, you know, the if you think about the history of Middle-earth that we know about, before, say, we cross the Misty Mountains, right? <clears throat> um, Galadriel has no role in that. We, we've had the Last Alliance, of course, the Battle of the Last Alliance, uh, you know, the Fall of Numenor, and the subsequent Battle of the Last Alliance have both figured, right? Um, Galadriel, no reference, no allusion to Galadriel. The Making of the Rings of Power and the Elven Kingdom of Eregion, which has fallen, that has come up, right? We heard all about that at the council. Um, you know, we passed through Holland, uh, and uh, you know, and and were reminded of it. No reference to Galadriel, right? So all of the major events, the forging of the rings of power, the the uh, the um, uh, as I say, you know, the battle of the last alliance, all of this stuff is um, has been established, and she has played no role in it. So, when we meet her, she tells us, oh yeah, I've just been hanging out here, like, practically forever, right? Oh, and she uh, she didn't take part in any of those Silmarillion things? Of course not. She's not in any of those, right? Tolkien's already written all of those stories, and she ain't in them, right? So, so when he writes her character in The Fellowship of the Ring, she's not involved in any of those things. So this story that we get is of her being is having no major role in the history of Middle-earth. And it puts her in a different position. This is not to say that in the Fellowship of the Ring we shouldn't make too big of a deal with Goadriel because she's not really that big a deal. No, she is a big deal. She becomes a really big deal once the Fellowship of the Ring is written. Once we get to Lorien, she's a huge deal. And of course, as we know, she's a huge deal for the whole rest of the story. Uh, you know, she is the one, not Elrond, you know, uh, and even in some ways more than Gandalf, who is still getting, you know, invoked, uh, you know, and, you know, Sam is still sort of praying to her from Mordor and um, you know all of these things are happening so clearly she blossoms very quickly in Tolkien's mind as a major and important character but she doesn't have a backstory yet her backstory is a very limited one um, for years uncounted I've dwelt here and lots of other important things have been going on but I didn't play an important role in the mind was she at uh, the Battle of Dagorlad? No reference, right? Of course not. Council of Elrond, she's not around yet, right? We haven't gotten that far in the story. So when Elrond is, you know, it, it, Círdan and Elrond stood with Gilgalad, uh, you know, and uh, Isildur and Elendil are also there. Galadriel? Now, you know, had the Council of Elrond been written later on, right? I think maybe Galadriel would have gotten a reference. But, um, but, but, um, but that doesn't happen yet, right? We don't see any evidence of that. So again, we have her in isolation. Um, it's, 
you know, so it, and I think this is a reflection of the fact that she seems to have kind of grown out of nothing. But I think it also, you know, the way that they sort of look back at her and the kind of influence that she has over this, over the characters and over the story, um, for the latter portions uh, of of the Lord of the Rings, is really interesting, and it makes it really interesting. Um, it makes it almost inevitable, I think that Tolkien was going to do some retcon on her backstory. Um, it is, I find, quite unshocking that this backstory of Galadriel does not remain her backstory. Um, even though the stories he is going to go on and tell are going to be contradictory to this story. In fact, as we'll notice, the uh, and as Christopher Tolkien draws attention to, the version of the story of Gladio and Celeborn's backstory that he puts in Appendix B, um, or sorry, in Appendix A. Appendix A? I think it's Appendix... No, Appendix B. Shoot, I'm forgetting which... Anyway, in the appendices, he tells the story, and it already contradicts this passage from The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, he has already written for them a different story than the one that he already put in The Fellowship of the Ring. Um... It is B. Thank you, Charlie. I don't know why I had a, a sudden flash of uh, of, uh, of uncertainty there. That happens to me sometimes when I suddenly doubt what I just said. Um, yes, Appendix B. Um, so uh, that is... Um, we, we can see already the ideas are developing that you know, he is already discontented with this concept of Galadriel. So Galadriel 1.0 uh, is not long for the world, and you know the, 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 the ink is barely dry on the Fellowship of the Ring before Galadriel 1.0 is being dismissed. So let's move to Galadriel 2.0, and let's integrate her backwards into the history of the story of the great events of Middle-earth. The earlier story, apart from the question of the ban and the pardon, to which the statements in the Silmarillion, The Road Goes Ever On, and Appendix B to The Lord of the Rings refer, is fairly clear. Galadriel, coming to Middle-earth as one of the leaders of the second host of the Noldor, that is, uh, again, for those of you familiar with the Silmarillion, you will remember that when the Noldor came back from Valinor, um, uh, sort of illegally, um, in rebellion against the Valar, came back to Middle-earth, Feanor led the first faction across, betraying and attempting to abandon the second portion, the second host of the Noldor, but they persevered and came anyway, and Galadriel came with them. They came in despite of Feanor and his followers, and that led to some quite understandable uh, uh, bad feelings among them. Um, okay, Galadriel, coming to Middle-earth as one of the leaders of the second host of the Noldor, met Celeborn in Doriath, and was later wedded to him. He was the grandson of Thingol's brother Elmo, a shadowy figure, about whom nothing is told, save that he was the younger brother of Elwë, Thingol, and Olwë, and was beloved of Elwë, with whom he remained. Elmo's son was named Galathon, and his sons were Celeborn and Galathil. Galathil was the father of Nimloth who wedded Dior Thingol's heir and was the mother of Elwing. By this genealogy, Celeborn was a kinsman of Galadriel, the granddaughter of Olwë of Alqualonde, but not so close as by that in which he became Olwë's grandson, which is later on the version 4. Don't worry about that right now. So that is, they're related, yeah, but pretty distantly. Um, it is a natural assumption that Galadriel, that Celeborn and Galadriel were present at the ruin of Doriath, it is said in one place that Celeborn escaped the sack of Doriath, and perhaps aided the escape of Elwing to the havens of Sirion with the Silmaril, 
but this is nowhere stated. Celeborn is mentioned in Appendix B to The Lord of the Rings as dwelling for a time in Linden south of the Loon, but early in the Second Age they passed over the mountains into Eriador. Okay, so here's the first overall shape. Now, obviously, major shift has happened, right? And that first major shift is they're totally a part of the Silmarillion story. They weren't, they were, they were, you know, he, he, he first conceived of her history as consistent with her total absence from the Silmarillion, right? Now, that's not the case anymore. Now she is being integrated backwards into the Silmarillion story, first and foremost. So she comes over with Fingolfin and the second host of the Noldor. She is in Doriath. She's there at the ruin of Doriath. She probably is there with Elwing uh, at the havens uh, of Syrian. Um, And then they're with Linden. They're in Linden with Gilgalad. There at the beginning. So at the end of the first age, we get the War of Wrath. Beleriand is destroyed. Linden uh, is the part on the very west coast uh, now of the new Middle Earth. If you look at the at the Middle Earth map, not the Silmarillion map, but the Lord of the Rings map, and you'll see the Blue Mountains and that bit of land which is called Linden. That is all that is left of Beleriand, and it is there that Go- that Gilgalad sets up his kingdom as the last High King of the Noldor. Galadriel and Celeborn, apparently, were with him at that time. Um, so now notice, Celeborn has moved up in the world, right? He's no longer like some Nandor dude who's just been hanging out, uh, you know, on the east side of the Misty Mountains ever since the beginning. Um, instead, he is now uh, uh, in the royal house of the Sindar. That's moved him up. But Galadriel has also moved up. Now she is uh, clearly ensconced in the family of Finway, and she is part of the uh, of the great story of the return from Valinor and everything. So his status is higher, but so is hers. Um, and I would say there's still a very similar gap there um, between them. Now, um, so she's been integrated into the Silmarillion stuff. Notice the, the kind of speculation there uh, that Christopher is doing, and I want to draw attention to that uh, when he says, uh, perhaps aided the escape of Elwing to the havens of Sirion with the Silmaril, but this is nowhere stated. This seems to me a perfectly plausible piece of speculation on Christopher Tolkien's part, but notice the the assumption that underlies it, the assumption that he is making based upon what Tolkien is saying here, the fact that Tolkien has gone back and placed them in Doriath and, 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 and made them explicitly, Celeborn explicitly at least, there at the ruin of Doriath, is that now basically he's sort of assuming they're major players, right? And if we know they escaped Doriath, you know, seeing as they're still alive and all. Uh, so they obviously escaped Doriath. We know the people who escaped Doriath went down with Elwing, so they must have been there. And so this idea, not just that they, you know, were some of the refugees running alongside Elwing, but they that they aided the escape of Elwing. You see the 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 concept of the story of going, you know, the sort of this the stature that her character has, even in this little speculation of, of Christopher Tolkien's, even though it's nowhere stated, he is assuming that this is a major event, so she was probably there, and she probably was playing a significant role, and uh, not only Diego, as you say, a more active role, um, but a sort of an authoritative role almost. That is, she's aiding Elwing, not just one of the other. Uh, refugees huddling along the shores of the river. As Neil, as you say, she's not just a face in the crowd. Which, and, you know, keep in mind, that would be a pretty major thing. You know, I mean, um, 
if she were, if she had no other claim to fame than just like, yeah, I was there at the ruin of Doriath. I mean, this is why Kelborn is is a much bigger deal now than he was before. I mean, even just to have been one of the surviving refugees of Doriath, who is still around, uh, you know, and uh, and you know, participating at the end of the Third Age, that by itself is a pretty big deal, right? But we see that this is not. This is not her role. Neil exactly just say she's not just a face in that crowd. She is already a person of some kind of gravitas, some kind of authority uh, in that crowd. Um, so okay, so this is this is so we can we can clearly see the direction in which uh, the story is moving here now. To the end there. So they dwelt with they dwelt for a time in Linden, south of the Loon. Again. Gilgalad is there, right? So they're part of Gilgalad's kingdom. So at the end of the first age, most of the elves go back to the west. The the, the they are pardoned by the Valar, and the Valar say, "Okay, uh, 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 Sindar, all you guys, you want to come back to Valinor? You can." Um, Noldor, uh, you're pardoned, right? We'll forgive you, and we'll let you return to Valinor. <clears throat> most of the elves say, "Groovy will come." Gilgoad is the leader of those who choose to remain in Middle-earth. So we have her and Celeborn there with Gilgalad as now several of the most... Prom- so now they were already, apparently, of some significance. Now, from the Second Age onward, they're of major significance. They and Gilgalad are some of the most prominent, and Elrond, of course, are some of the most prominent and important... And Cured in the ship, right? The most prominent and important elves that remain currently uh, in Middle-earth. And they don't stay with him, right? They don't just hang out with Gilgalad. El- Elrond hangs out with Gilgalad for a really long time, right? Um, there are no issues there. Galadriel doesn't hang out in Gilgalad's kingdom. He's the High King. Gilgalad is the High King of the Noldor. She's a Noldor. Uh, she's a Noldo, sorry, that is the singular. Um, and uh, uh, But she doesn't just dwell in the realm of her High King. She passes over the mountains into Eriador. And <clears throat> what, pray what, we, uh, did they get up to over there? Well, of course, they found a kingdom. This is now when we have <clears throat> retcon number two. Retcon number one was let's go back and insert them into the Silmarillion story. That could be done with relatively little trauma. That is to say, no real alteration of the Silmarillion narratives was necessitated by her being inserted backwards into the Silmarillion story. She can be put among the people who came across, you know, in the second host of the Noldor. That's fine. She can be put in Doriath. That's fine. Her position and Celeborn's position doesn't alter the plot in any way. Now we start to alter the plot, right? When she crosses over into Eriador. Um... So let's let's uh, let's look at this. Um, she founds the kingdom of Eregion. We learned about the kingdom of Eregion, which was significant because it was the only place where lots and lots of Noldor lived. In other words, most of the Noldor are not living with Gilgalad the High King, but cross over and live. Here, and we're told that Galadriel is the center of those. Now, when we're told about the elves of Eregion uh, in the earlier parts of the Fellowship of the Ring, both in Chapter 2 in Gandalf's story to Frodo and in the Council of Elrond, um, 
Celebrimbor, the uh, chief of the smiths, is the major figure, right? I mean, he is the he is the lord of Eregia, and he's explicitly called that. Um, and the elven kingdom of Eregion is all about the jewel smiths and the forging of the one rings and ultimately Sauron's deception uh, of Celebrimbor and the jewel smiths and the forging of the master ring and the war that follows leads to the downfall of Eregion and what was really the last kingdom of the Noldor in Middle-earth. That, anyway, is the story that we get in the earlier part, in the pre-Goadriel, in the Goadriel 1.0 world. Now, if Celeborn, or sorry, not Celeborn, who cares about Celeborn, if Gilgalad is going to stay in Linden, on the other side of the mountains, still in that kind of, uh, uh, you know, Beleriand nostalgia zone that we get on the shore of the sea, which is, like, what Linden is, if Gilgalad is going to stay there, um, the other Noldor, the other elves who go further inland are going to take a different leader. Well, obviously, it's going to be Galadriel, right? That, and so that story gets changed significantly. Galadriel becomes essentially the ruler, Galadriel and Kelborn. I mean, obviously, the two of them together in like a totally mutual relationship become the lord and lady of Eregion. And Celebrimbor works for her, basically. I mean, he is not the lord of the realm He's an important person, but she is the one who is really sort of responsible for Eregion. Okay, so, but to say that, uh, so that's already a significant change, right? It's So it's not just about Celebrimbor anymore, it's about Galadriel, and, Cal- and Celebrimbor is also there, but whatever, okay. But what about Sauron? Now we've got to bring Sauron into this story, because unless we're going to change the story about the Rings of Power and, you know, Anatar, Lord of Gifts, or, uh, bringer of gifts and all that stuff, if uh, unless we're going to change fundamentally that narrative, which is really, um, you know, much closer to the core of the Lord of the Rings story than any of the other things we've been talking about so far, um, we have to manage this. So, um, so here we go. In a regium. Sauron posed as an emissary of the Valar, sent by them to Middle-earth, thus anticipating the Astari. That, I I take, by the way, the parentheses, uh, the quotation in parentheses there. This is a summary that Christopher Tolkien is giving. Um, And so I believe that's a, you know, a a direct quote from Tolkien there. Um, And I love that idea, by the way, of Sauron coming to Eregion um, and his being that kind of an anticipation uh, of uh, of of the Astari, I think was 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 very cool. Oh, and April, I'll mention this too since you brought it up. Um, uh, April asks, "What does Tolkien mean when he says since Sauron had as yet no single name?" Um, Tolkien really draws attention to something that I think people um, are very quick to forget about when they're thinking about the whole period of time <clears throat> first in the Second Age when Sauron was first establishing his kingdom and his power, and then again when he begins to take form in the Third Age, um, you know, in the Necromancer period, one of the things that people are very quick to overlook is the fact that 
there's when you tell the story, it makes it sound really simple. I mean, you know, you can tell in one paragraph how Sauron began to take shape again, and then it's really easy to imagine, like, wow, all these really wise elves should have picked up on that. How could they be so oblivious about it? Well, they didn't, you know, they didn't have phones, they didn't have the internet, um, you know, they 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 didn't have means of communicating. Um, and they, or and more importantly, means of perceiving what was going on. So they were aware of the fact that there was like evil stuff going on, but what they didn't realize was that there was a single mastermind. Why should they necessarily suspect that? Um, Morgoth has been banished. They didn't expect another Dark Lord to rise up to take his place. Um, so, April, what he's referring to in saying Sauron had as yet no single name. He is going around and he's building his power and he's building his sort of network, um, but he's not just, you know, he doesn't just like, you know, put up, uh, uh, put up, uh, you know, put out his shingle, you know, like Dark Lord now in business and taking recruits. That's not how Sauron did it, right? So he, um, you know, influences various groups of people uh, and uh, and leads them to, you know, like to, you know, the, 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 the men in what was Dunland and, and encourages them to fight against the Numenorians. You know, if they heard that there was some evil figure who was encouraging the men of that region to fight against the Numenorians? why should they identify that person? There's no reason for them to identify that figure with, you know, somebody who's stirring up trouble out east and amassing army. It's, why should they think, why should they make that assumption? They didn't. Um, so the fact that she, Goadriel, is one of the first ones to say, to perceive the fact, wait a second, this is not just a coincidence. There's there's actual strategy going on. If you look, this this stuff all fits together. I think all of these things are being controlled by a single mind. Remember, it's that same thing that happens in the Third Age. People didn't realize. I mean, there was the Witch King of Angmar, right, who was fighting against uh, against um, Arnor. Yeah, it turns out, of course, the Witch King of Angmar was the Lord of the Ringwraiths. Nobody knew that, right? I mean, it was just, he was an evil guy. Everybody knew he was an evil guy. And he was fighting against, you know, the Numenorean kingdom in the north, which, you know, of course, like, what else is that evil guy up whose kingdom's up in the north going to do? You know, they were the major threat to his rule of the north. So, of course, he's going to war against them. Why should they imagine that that is being coordinated by a central will with attacks on Gondor and the Easterlings coming in and you know why should they suspect that this kind of um, this kind of uh, you know sort of global strategy was being coordinated? They didn't suspect that for a really long time. Anyway, um, so this just it's 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 uh, it's one of my. Um, well, it's a, it's a, it doesn't even really qualify as a as a as, as a pet peeve, but I, a lot of times I hear people saying like, "Oh, like they were so dumb, they should have seen this coming." Uh, that's much easier to say when you're looking at the whole picture. I mean, it's it's uh, it's like extreme hindsight. Um, and the anticipation of the Astari thing makes it, uh, makes also Sauron's appearance uh, here in Eregion and his acceptance in Eregion um, even more understandable in this way. Um, is it implausible that the Valar might send somebody to come and aid and assist them in making Middle-earth a more blessed place? <clears throat> no. Again, that actually will happen, right? Um, so, um, why should they automatically um, <clears throat> suspect 
anybody who does this kind of thing. So, um, yeah, yeah. Diego, excellent observation. Diego says it's the same idea as Morgoth anticipating Orome, using the riders to make the elves scared of Orome before he shows up. Yeah, when the elves first wake in Quivienen, Morgoth starts snatching them and pulling them uh, off to experiment with him in his R&D department. But when he does that, he uh, he he has, like, dark shapes appearing as riders uh, on horses coming, so that they'll be scared of a rider if he shows up um, to sort of ho- to sort of inoculate them against accepting um, the the rider himself, Orome, when he comes in. Um, you could say perhaps Sauron was anticipating, you know, maybe they will send somebody over. Um, and if they do, um, you know, Timothy asks, was Sauron masquerading knowingly? Well, I think it would be a little bit too much to say knowingly, but it's a pretty good speculation. That is to say that if the Valar were going to intervene, that it would probably be by a messenger and not by... I mean, that's what we hear about what Morgoth did, right? It's not that he, you know, foresaw that Orome would come. He just knew that if any Valar found them, it was probably going to be Orome. Um, So he planned ahead for that contingency. I would put um, <clears throat> Sauron's uh, uh, approach here in the same kind of camp. Um, okay. Uh, good. Um, yes, good. Too, um, Tom is uh, pointing out... Um, that most politicians in England didn't see Hitler coming. Peace in our time and Elrond's statement that the elves thought evil was ended forever after the War of Wrath are parallel statements. Yeah. And Kevin, uh, uh, Kevin Keating adds, I suppose thinking of our own world, our natural tendency when bad things happen isn't to immediately conclude that it's all the strategy of one person. That is, unless you're a conspiracy theorist, and even most of them don't conclude that there's one mastermind behind the whole thing. And again, remember, in addition to that, Kevin, they had reason to believe that there wasn't a single figure because there had been a single figure and he's gone now, right? Um, so, uh, so yeah. Anyway, let's go back to Eregion and to the Galadriel Kingdom. You know, in in uh, excuse me, did I say Galad? I meant the you know Celeborn Kingdom, obviously, in Eregion. Sorry for misspeaking there. In Eregion, Sauron posed as an emissary of the Valar, sent by them to Middle-earth, thus anticipating the Astari, or ordered by them to remain there to give aid to the elves. He perceived at once that Galadriel would be his chief adversary and obstacle. This is Galadriel 2.0, right? When we take the Galadriel that we come to know in the Lord of the Rings and we project her backwards, now that conclusion is inescapable, right? Well, granted, if that Galadriel was there in the Second Age... She's going to be the major, and she's there. She would clearly be there in Eregion, and she's going to be the one that Sauron's going to have to get around somehow. Okay, and he endeavored, therefore, to placate her, bearing her scorn with outward patience and courtesy. No explanation is offered in this rapid outline of why Galadriel scorned Sauron unless she saw through his disguise, or of why, if she did perceive his true nature, she permitted him to remain in Eregion. Sauron used all his arts upon Celebrimbor and his fellow smiths, who had formed a society or brotherhood very powerful in Eregion, the, the Gwaith i Myrdain. But he worked in secret, unknown to Goadriel and Celeborn. Before long, Sauron had the Gwaith i Myrdain under his influence, for at first they had great profit from his instruction in secret matters of their craft. 
So great became his hold on the Myrdine, that at length he persuaded them to revolt against Goadriel and Celeborn, and to seize power in Deregion. And that was at some time between 1350 and 1400 of the Second Age. Goadriel thereupon left Eregion and passed through Khazad-dûm to Lorinand, taking with her Amroth and Celebrion, but Celeborn would not enter the mansions of the dwarves, and he remained behind in Eregion, sucking his... Uh, sorry, disregarded by Celebrimbor. Everybody disregarded him. Um, in Lorinand, Goadriel took up rule and defense against Sauron. Okay. Um, note, note that a couple things here. First, the story of the notice how the two things are being merged together. That is the two primary elements of the Eregion story as we first learned it in the Lord of the Rings was a the lordship of Celebrimbor and the chief place of the jewel smiths. You know what they were not called that the Gwythia Myrdine, but them. And secondly, the corruption of Celebrimbor and company, uh, the, 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 the cousining of them, uh, to use the delightful word that Christopher Tolkien does to describe it, um, uh, the cousining of the jewelsmiths leading up to the forging of the One Ring. Those are the two central elements of the Eregion story. Now, the two of them are being combined, and they're being combined to... It essentially, the lordship of Celebrimbor is now a consequence of his corruption, right? It's not just that he was the noble lord of Eregion who sadly fell. In his fall, he seizes power and becomes the lord of Eregion. So, you can see how the... and, and it, basically, he uh, Tolkien transforms that into um, he takes the corruption and emphasizes the corruption, making it sort of fall more into line with the whole rings of power issue, right? Um, to show that um, this is not a question of somebody who was really high and really good and really noble and the lord of, of Eregion falling into this bad pattern, but his desire to be lord in the first place, <clears throat> which is so so like the whole ring of power issue, um, is actually related together. So, that's pretty cool. And notice what Goadriel does. Thinking of Goadriel now, Goadriel's story, what does she do? Nothing. She leaves. She bows out. She doesn't actually fight back against Celebrimbor, even expose or attempt to expose Sauron. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is going here. I'll try to carry on. Uh, let me know if my voice gets too painful to listen to here. Um, she bows out. That seems to me a really significant emphasis. She is showing both wisdom and humility. <clears throat> that if she were to try to assert her mastery over Celebrimbor, yeah, exactly, Roy, there would be the risk of another kinslaying, right? That would be uh, to absolutely play into Sauron's hands. She won't do it. She doesn't do it. Instead, she abdicates. She leaves. She doesn't contest it. So we see her power, her influence, but also her wisdom and her humility. Um, and that's that's uh, that's pretty interesting. You know how we see those two things, both her leadership 
and her stature, but still that uh, that that wisdom. Um, uh, of course, as Sarah points out, Celebrimbor gets an individual character trait, and it's racism! Hooray! <laughs> yeah, exactly, Sarah. Um, he finally has something he can hang his own hat on there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, the one thing, and Christopher Tolkien points it out himself in his uh, square brackets here as he goes through, this piece of retcon is still an imperfect piece of retcon. There's still a problem with it. In fact, a pretty significant hole in it. And that is, how did Sauron go on? We have two options, right? If she's going to be there in Eregion, if she's going to be the, the, the ruler, functionally, of Eregion, Sauron has to either deceive her or get around her. Um, so he's got to choose. Is he going to make Goadriel taken in <clears throat> by Sauron? Um, and he doesn't choose that. It would be hard to choose that, because we were told from the beginning that neither Gilgalad nor Elrond would listen to him. That was part of the original story. So to say that Goadriel is taken in by Sauron would put her below Gilgalad and Elrond in wisdom, and he's not going to go there. So that doesn't fit with Goadriel, the story of Goadriel 2.0. So instead he ends up in this sort of weird place where she saw through him from the beginning, not saw through him in the sense of like, I know that you are truly Sauron, former servant of Morgoth, but rather... I'm not buying what you're selling. You're a fake. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're doing. Um, but she heaps scorn upon him, we're told. Um, so it seems to me, you know, basically, he... Again, Christopher Tolkien says, No explanation is offered why Galadriel scorned Sauron unless she saw through his disguise, or of why, if she did perceive his true nature, she permitted him to remain in Eregion. All I can assume, based on what Tolkien has said there, is that what he was imagining was something in the middle ground there, right? That is, um, the middle ground between her being taken in by Sauron and her perceiving his true nature. Um, It seems like she is suspicious of him and scorns him and doesn't believe him, but does not necessarily know what his true nature is. It would be a little bit hard uh, to imagine her just saying, oh yeah, but but whatever, you can stay, I don't mind if you stay, just, I don't believe you. Um, it'd be hard to imagine her saying that if she had perceived his true nature, if she really knew that, you know, exactly who he was. Um, but, uh, anyway, so, um, so that, I think, is it's it's one thing, it's kind of a, it's, it's at least sort of a weak point in the Gladriel 2.0 story. Um, But look at the end of her story. In its concluding passage, the narrative returns to Galadriel, telling that the sea longing grew so strong in her that, though she deemed it her duty to remain in Middle-earth while Sauron was still unconquered, she determined to leave Loranand and to dwell near the sea. She committed Loranand to Amroth, and passing again through Moria with Celebrion, she came to Imladris seeking Celeborn. There, it seems, she found him. <laughs> hey, oh, there's my husband. I was wondering where I where I last put you. And there they dwelt again. Those husbands turned up in the darndest places, you know, after ages, apparently. 
Anyway, there it seems she found him, and there they dwelt together for a long time, and it was then that Elrond first saw Celebrian and loved her, though she had, though she, though he said nothing of it. It was while Goadriel was in Imladris that the council referred to above was held, but at some later time, there is no indication of the date, Goadriel and Celeborn, together with Celebrian, departed from Imladris and went to the little inhabit in, to the little inhabited lands between the mouth of the Guathlo and Ethier Anduin. There they dwelt in Belphalas, at the place that was afterwards called Dol Emroth. There Emroth, their son, at times visited them, and their company was swelled by Nandarin elves from Lorinand. It was not until far on in the Third Age, when Emroth was lost and Lorinand was in peril, that Galadriel returned there in the year 1981. Okay. So the later story of Galadriel, the Third Age story of Galadriel is her wandering, right? She leaves Eregion and goes to goes to Loranand, as it was called, right? And then, you know, things go south very sharply in Eregion, and Sauron wrecks the place. Afterwards, she goes and she hangs out in Imladris, and turns out, hey, look, her husband was there. Who knew? Um, then she retires down to Belfalas, um, and and this seems to be a kind of retirement. She's living near the sea because the sea longing is so strong in her. She is really, really longing for the sea. So she goes and lives by the shore. She's in this middle place where she is not just vigilant against Sauron. She still desires to be vigilant against Sauron, who's now revealed as this enemy whom she can foresee is going to cause a significant uh, amount of trouble. But she is torn by that sea longing which pulls her away from frontline service against Sauron. Doesn't want to leave, doesn't want to stay. Eventually she returns to Loranand when Amroth, who is still in the Goadriel 2.0 version, Amroth is the son of Goadriel and Caliborn. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on Amroth, but, uh, but just notice or remember, for framework purposes, Christopher Tolkien asserts that he finds it very unlikely, and I would agree, it seems to me pretty darn unlikely, too, that Amroth is not conceived as the son of, Go- of Goadriel and Caliborn in The Lord of the Rings. Somebody really probably would have mentioned that when Amroth comes up. So, um, uh, so anyway, so Amroth probably not... So, in this version here, in the Goadriel 2.0 version, the uh, the fairly soon after the writing of the Lord of the Rings, but 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 still afterwards, version of the story, Amroth has now become her son, and who becomes king there in Lorien after she leaves, uh, and uh, and he still visits them down in what will later be called Dol Amroth, and notice now that their presence, that is to say, Goadriel and Celeborn's presence in Belfalas, is given as the explanation for why. Uh, there is a Nandarin elf settlement down there in Belfalas. Um, notice how in the Galadriel 2.0 version, Galadriel is like an elf magnet, right? She goes, she moves over to Eriador. So what happens? A Noldoran settlement, right? Eregion springs up around her uh, because she is this great and attractive figure and all the elves want to come and be with her. They move down into quiet retirement, right? And they, they, get, they get a little vacation home because they haven't seen each other in several hundred years or whatever down in Belfalas and all these other uh, Nandor come down and join them. And this explains how that came about. 
Um, anyway, okay. We get sort of in between the biggest change to the Galadriel story, one of the most fascinating elements, I think, of the Galadriel story, as Tolkien developed it over time, is the addition of the element of the ban. <clears throat> this doesn't happen until later. The clear evidence that we get of this is in the 60s. So, it's the, so this is, I call it Galadriel 2.1, um, because it seems to be transitional between the second Galadriel story and the third Galadriel story. Um, but uh, but it's much closer to uh, to the third than the second chronologically. The reasons and motives given for Galadriel's remaining in Middle Earth are various. The passage just cited from the Road Goes Ever On says explicitly: after the overthrow of Morgoth at the end of the First Age, a ban was set upon her return, and she had replied proudly that she had no wish to do so. There is no such explicit statement in The Lord of the Rings, but in a letter written in 1967, my father declared the exiles were allowed to return, save for a few chief actors in the rebellion, of whom, at the time of The Lord of the Rings, only Galadriel remained. At the time of her lament in Lorien, in The Fellowship of the Ring, she believes this to be perennial, as long as the earth endured. She believes she is permanently banned from Valinor. Hence, she concludes her lament with a wish or prayer that Frodo may, as a special grace, be granted a purgatorial, but not penal, sojourn in Erisea, the solitary isle in sight of Amon. Maybe even thou shalt find it, she says at the end of her song. The solitary isle in sight of Amon, though for her the way is closed. Her prayer was granted, but also her personal ban was lifted in reward for her services against Sauron, and above all, for her rejection of the temptation to take the ring when offered to her. So at the end, we see her taking ship. This statement, very positive in itself, does not, however, demonstrate that the, con that the conception of a ban on Galadriel's return into the West was present when the chapter Farewell to Lorien was composed many years before, and I am inclined to think it was not. Um, this, I, 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 again, that Christopher Tolkien's analysis there seems very sound. Um, I agree, there doesn't seem to be any explicit allusion to anything like an actual ban against Galadriel. Notice what's happening here? Um, Tolkien is going back and changing the story. But there's a complicated cause-and-effect relationship. That is, his analysis, his version of this story here, is based in part, as he explains in that letter that Christopher Tolkien is quoting, is based on a close reading of The Lord of the Rings itself. Right? He goes back and he, he shows how Goadriel's song can be understood in the context of this band. Right? So this is not just Tolkien going back and saying... Here's what I said in the Fellowship of the Ring. Nah, I don't mean that anymore. Right, I'm going to add this totally new thing that wasn't there. Um, that's not what he does, right? Instead, he adds this new dimension, which fits with what was there, even though it doesn't seem to have been there. Um, so, it's, you know, this, this idea that was kind of... Um, um, <clears throat> that was sort of almost implied. Yana, that's uh, Yana's word here. Um, uh, that it does seem to be uh, uh, 
Jonas says it does seem to be implied um, that the Lord of the Rings in uh, uh, it does seem to be implied in the Lord of the Rings in a way by which ship will take me across the sea and passing the test. Um, yes, yes. Um, now, when she says I passed the test again, w- what's not explicit there is that it's it's not explicit that a test has been set to her and the consequence of that test, like the reward for passing the test is returning to Valinor. When she says, I pass the test, I will diminish and pass into the West, um, that seems to be actually evidence that there isn't a ban, right? That this is her decision point. She admits to Frodo that she, her heart has longed for what he has offered. She's like, you know, the whole Dominion thing, I really like Dominion. Um, I don't want to diminish. I want to grow bigger. I want to have more power. Honestly, that's really kind of where my mind is, she says to Frodo, right? And then she says, but no, I passed the test. I'm going to diminish and pass into the... That's going to be my alternative. She is at a fork in the road, right? One path before her leads to increased dominion, which is what her heart has longed for. The other path leads to diminishing and to passing in the West, because that's what elves do, right? Um... What Tolkien does is simply superimpose upon that choice that she's making this backstory, which wasn't there, but which helps to draw further attention to that element of choice that already was there, which places even greater significance on this. It was already a significant moment. At n- in no version of this story, of the Lord of the Rings story, was Galadriel's choice not to take the ring when it was offered to her not a big deal. It was always a big deal. But now, <clears throat> it's given an even greater significance by adding this element of backstory. Namely, the explicit ban of the Valar. Um, uh, I can't help making an invidious comment here, but I will restrict it to only one brief thing. I think that certain other fantasy authors of more modern epic fantasy series who desire to make comments about their books and things that could have been done differently could learn lessons in subtlety and sophistication from Tolkien's retconning. You've got it, Annie. I shan't even say her name. But anyway... um, uh, boy, that's been annoying me. All I have to say is, dead authors are the best kind of authors. <laughs> Arthur says, she who must not be named. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. The dead are the better. That's always been my policy, and now more than ever. Anyhow, bygones. Moving on to Goadriel 3.0, because this is sort of the, tr- the transition point to Goadriel 3.0. <clears throat> Goadriel 3.0, bigger and better than ever. Goadriel was the greatest of the Noldor, except Fanor, maybe, though she was wiser than he, and her wisdom increased with the long years. Whoa. <laughs> right, okay. We, uh, we already had her projected back into the Silmarillion story. But she, as we saw, made relatively few ripples, right? When she was projected back. She could be inserted at various points. No major alterations to the sort of the plot of the Silmarillion was necessary in order to reinsert her back. 
now, she's the greatest of the Noldor, maybe except Feanor. That's a huge difference. Now she is not just another figure, right? You know, another one in the list of the really, you know, the, the, those really great uh, and powerful people who influenced events in the Silmarillion. Now she's at the top of the list. She's greater than Turgon. She's greater than than Fingolfin. She's greater than uh, than Finrod. She's greater than Thingol. Uh, she now... She, and think about that. Think about, you know, the, the vision of Galadriel hanging out in Doriath, which we get in the published Silmarillion, and which is essentially based on Galadriel 2.0. Um, now she outclasses Thingol, right? Thingol is like a shadow of Galadriel. This, uh, um, this, is, uh, this, this, is, this, is, this is a very big deal. Her mother name was Nerwin, man-maiden. Feminists eat your heart out. And she grew to be done. I'm not going to make any further comments about that. Uh, but I, I, I cannot help myself from thinking when I see that uh, uh, the, the large meal that feminist critics would make of that. And she grew to be tall beyond the measure even of the women of the Noldor. She was strong of body, mind, and will, a match for both the loremasters and the athletes of the Eldar in the days of their youth. Even among the Eldar she was accounted beautiful, and her hair was held a marvel unmatched. It was golden like the hair of her father and of her foremother, Indus, but richer and more radiant, for its gold was touched by some memory of the star-like silver of her mother. And the Eldar said that the light of the two trees, Laurelin and Telperion, had been snared in her tresses. Many thought that this saying first gave to Feanor the thought of imprisoning and blending the light of the trees that later took shape in his hands as the Silmarils. For Feanor beheld the hair of Galadriel with wonder and delight. He begged three times for a tress, but Galadriel would not give him even one hair. These two kinsfolk, the greatest of the Eldar of Valinor, were unfriends forever." Yeah, I love the word unfriends, too. See, this is totally different from just unfriending on Facebook. This is like if there's an, uh, an actual unfriend button, right? Uh, to, 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 to declare yourself someone's unfriend is a, is a much bigger deal. Um, okay. She's not only uh, probably, roughly, a peer of Feanor in stature, in greatness a match for both the loremasters and the athletes of the Eldar. I'm going to go out on a whim and uh, suggest that in the third Hobbit film, we are going to see Goadriel in physical combat. And I'm going to go out on another limb and predict <clears throat> that there are going to be uh, many Tolkien fans that will object to seeing Goadriel engage in physical combat. Um... This passage suggests that she is perfectly capable and even likely to engage in physical combat and to kick a great deal of butt doing it. Um, she is one of the greatest of mind and body. But not only that, she is the inspiration of the Silmarils. Again, contrasting back to Galadriel 2.0, right? This is not just like her being slipped into the Silmarillion with barely a ripple. Ripple? Good. She's now the root of the Silmarillion story, right? I mean, of course, you know, the Silmarillion story is really a Feanor story, but he's 
come this close to making the Silmarils be a Goadriel story, right? Yeah, I mean, Feanor played a role. You know, he actually made the Silmarils and stuff, but uh, but really, it was kind of, it was kind of uh, it was kind of all about all about Galadriel. Um, that is really striking. That is pretty amazing, I think. Um, and uh, of course, we get the passage that well, I was going to say everybody loves. Maybe that is too heavy of an assertion, but I, I think it's a pretty lovable uh, thing. <clears throat> this idea of Feanor asking for just, if he could just have one of her hairs and her three times telling him no. And of course, everyone who reads this has to think of Gimli in The Lord of the Rings, right? Again, this is one of those instances where we have to remember the cause and effect. The Gimli story is not inspired by this. This is inspired by the Gimli story, right? Um, it is Feanor who is following in Gimli's footsteps, not the other. Of course, the chronology within Middle-earth obviously works differently from that. Um, but it's one of the places where we get um, a passage in The Lord of the Rings recalled and given a new uh, and really quite delightful significance. Um, <clears throat> it makes perfect sense, without this passage, that when Gimli... Uh, when Gimli asks for uh, one of her hairs, that the other elves around her kind of gasp and are like, "Oh my goodness!" You know this, and Caliborn gives him this look, right? Uh, this sort of inscrutable look, and Gimli knows that he is treading on on dangerous ground, right? Um, because he said, "You can hear it in his phrasing, right?" He says, "I don't ask such a thing, but you." You, you called upon me to name my desire, right? I'm, 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 be, I'm confessing to you this is what I would like, but I'm not asking for it. Um, and you know, he even corrects himself in mid, mid-flow, right? Um, if it might be permitted to ask, nay, to name one of your hairs, right? Um, he, he, he knows that it's um, a really intimate and cheeky thing to ask Galandrio. Um she grants it to him. So again, that was true even before this echo. When we have this echo now, and again, this is this is this is this is what the master of retcon is able to do uh, to go back and <clears throat> not just uh, you know switch around something that he said before, but to give new significance to this passage uh, and to to lend a new richness uh, to that moment in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, by adding this stuff on. Yes, Kate. And Gimli says he'd put them in, in imperishable crystal, and there are three of them. It's so brilliant. Um, and, I mean... And it's not that I don't think he was... I mean, like the, the imperishable crystal thing, and the silver, and and gold, and the three of them... I mean... It's pretty Silmarillo-like to begin with, right? So again, even this... this the, the, the connecting back... Um, the the connecting back to uh, to the actual Silmarils and to Feanor, really, Kate, I think we can see as just a kind of extension of what was already really kind of implicit there. Um, but but it's a but it's a really 
Nice uh, extension. Evan suggests maybe she gave them to Gimway purely as an additional insult to Fanor. Yeah, and I hope word of this gets back to Fanor, right? Uh, hey, maybe that's why she uh, she uh, lobbied extra hard to get Gimway to come over, you know, so she could be like, hey, Fanor, you know, uh, <laughs> check out the dwarf who has my hairs that I wouldn't give to you. Um, <laughs> Scott says they actually go see Thanor and Mandos every week. Yeah, probably you know, uh, uh, you know, wave through through the bars. Check it out, Thanor. Eat your heart out. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, but but she's not only greater in stature. Nancy says she is Thanor's best unfriend. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, she's not only so much greater in stature, she also um, still has the moral complexity that we see of her in Galadriel 2.0. From her earliest years, she had a marvelous gift of insight into the minds of others, but judged them with mercy and understanding, and she withheld her goodwill from none, save only Fanor. In him she perceived a darkness that she hated and feared, though she did not perceive that in the shadow of the, that the shadow of the same evil had fallen upon the minds of all the Noldor and upon her own. That I think is a is a really so we have her now as again talk about making ripples in the Silmarillion story. Now she is standing against Feanor and his evil. Um, in the the the, the Galadriel 2.0 version, which, as I said, is the one we get in the actual published Silmarillion, we he, she is one of the ones who responds most keenly to Feanor's call. When Feanor's like, "Hey, let's go to Middle Earth and let's establish realms for ourselves," she is one of the ones who is named as being as as thinking like, "Hmm, realms. That sounds good. Yeah, let's do this." Right? Um, he is keeping that idea. He's not contradicting that, but he is making her to be. Not just sort of the, 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 the not, not just corresponding to Feanor in her abilities, uh, in her power, um, but standing against him morally as well. But tragically, she fails to perceive that she is tainted by the same evil that he is. And so the fact that she's still great though she is, perhaps because she's so great, as we see with Feanor uh, in the Silmarillion, um, she too has this fall that's coming. So it came to pass that when the light of Valinor failed, forever as the, forever as the Noldor thought, she joined the rebellion against the Valar who commanded them to stay. That is, uh, so it came to pass that is, this, this, the same evil had fallen upon her own mind and upon the minds of all the Noldor. And once she had set foot upon that road of exile, she would not relent but rejected the last message of the Valar and came under the doom of Mandos. Even after the merciless assault upon the Teleri and the rape of their ships, though she fought fiercely against Feanor in defense of her mother's kin, she did not turn back. Another major wave, not just a ripple, a wave. In the Now we have, uh, we were told that the, the host of Fingolfin came upon the fight and some of them joined in, not knowing how it started and what happened and thinking that maybe the Teleri were ambushing them, right? All we're told in the Silmarillion is that the people of Finarfin, among whom uh, Goadriel would be, she's the daughter of Finarfin, uh, the people of Finarfin had no role, mostly because they were in the back, Right? They didn't even get there until the thing was over. Now we have her not just being innocent of the blood of the kinslaying, as 
the sons of Finar, Finar, you know, make a make a big point of to Thingol in the Silmarillion. She is fighting against Feanor. Um, so she takes part in the kinslaying on the other side. That's a big deal. But she doesn't turn back. Her pride was unwilling to return, a defeated suppliant for pardon. But now she burned with desire to follow Feanor with her anger to whatever lands he might come and to thwart him in all the ways that she could. Now what we see, I think, here is Goadriel in... This kind of helps us to understand Goadriel's problem. If she's so great and she's so wise, why is she doing this? Why is she going under the doom of Mandos? Even if she might have been in some sense deceived or, you know, that that she didn't realize the evil had fallen on, on her own mind and so when she decided she wanted to rebel, she didn't sort of realize what a big deal this was or, you know, she managed to deceive herself. But surely the kinslang should have woken her up, right? I mean, if she's fighting against Feanor there, obviously she's not going to keep following him, right? At that point, no, no, she's not. But she's unwilling to return in her pride and we see also her pride leading her on, right? It's not just she doesn't want to eat crow in front of the Valar, that seems to be part of the point um, that he's making here, but her pride, she wants to follow Feanor with her anger, and to thwart him in all ways that she could. She's going to follow him to whatever lands he might come. Doesn't that kind of sound like a distant echo of the Oath of Feanor itself? Right? Um... Yeah, good. Timothy had just said this. She does with Fanor what Fanor does with the Silmarils. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and we can see her falling into that same kind of tragic pattern. We see her own pride undermining her. And the, the kind of pride which seems to be so endemic among the greatest of the great in Tolkien's world, um, that she is setting herself up as this kind of moral arbiter, right? I'm going to be the opponent of Fanor. I'm going to go out and do good. I'm going to, but yet she's deceiving herself because she doesn't perceive the evil that has fallen upon her own mind. I think this is a really fascinating um, uh, uh, version of her character, and I think that we can see um, some. Yes, Jeff, this is the curse of subcreators, exactly, or at least uh, the, the peril of being a subcreator. Absolutely. Um, this is, uh, I, I think this is a really fascinating version of her story. And now we we get here in Goadriel 3.0, the ban against her that's placed. Now look at the, uh, the way that the ban is emphasized here. Pride still moved her when, at the end of the Elder Days, after the final overthrow of Morgoth, so the end of the First Age, she refused the pardon of the Valar for all who had fought against him and remained in Middle-earth. It was not until too long... Now, why? Fanor's long dead, right? So there's no question of, like, well, I have to be there. If I'm not there, who's going to oppose Fanor, right? I have to be the anti-Fanor. I have to lead the uh, the, the, the contrary to Fanor faction. Um, now, notice, we're not really ever told how... She, I mean, Galadriel 3.0, if you'd think she would be making other ripples in the Silmarillion story, too, right? Um... You know, there are certain questions that are never answered here, um, but which seem to present themselves. If this is Galadriel now, if she's now the greatest of the great, if she's essentially, at least in her own mind, the leader of the anti-Fanor faction, where was she at the Battle of Unnumbered Tears? Where was she at the Dagor 
Bragalach? Where was she in the council that was deciding about the leaguer of Angband? I mean, you'd think she'd be making big ripples uh, in other places uh, in the Silmarillion story if he were actually to go through and revise it consistently to this version of the Galadriel story. Um, He doesn't seem to have done that. That's why the published Silmarillion that Christopher Tolkien gives us in 1977 is essentially the Galadriel 2.0 story, because that's the last one that Tolkien actually integrated uh, into the Silmarillion version. In the in his revision of the Silmarillion materials, which you can read, for instance, in Morgoth's Ring, um, volume 10 of the History of Middle-earth, you can see some of those passages which are in the published Silmarillion about Galadriel have worked their way in. Those little, you know, uh, ways in which her name can get worked in without a ripple the 2.0 version. He never got around to redoing the Silmarillion in the ways that Galadriel 3.0 really would have insisted. You can't imagine. If she was in Doriath, wouldn't the history of Doriath be different? Can you imagine the Turin story with Galadriel 3.0 living there? Right? Um, You know, how might that have happened differently? Anyway. uh, Sorry, but I'll carry on. It was not until two long ages more had passed when at last all that she had desired in her youth came to her hand, the ring of power and the dominion of Middle-earth of which she had dreamed, that her wisdom was full-grown and she rejected it, and passing the last test, departed from Middle-earth forever. Okay, so we have the ban asserted and this sense of her wisdom now being fully grown, um, that she had... um, uh, that she had uh, come to this full richness of wisdom, that she had come to recognize um, the truth about herself, that, you know, and the, the, the extent to which her desire for power, in which she was sort of deceiving herself. I mean, doesn't it even sound... Doesn't it seem like the distant cousin of uh, ring-induced monologue? <clears throat> you know, that whole... No, I'm not seeking to claim power in Middle-earth. I'm not rebelling against the Valar and going to Middle-earth because I want to rule kingdoms at my own will. That's not really my motivation. My motivation is, you know, somebody's got to stand against Feanor, because that Feanor guy, he's totally, he's totally off his twig. I mean, that guy is just a menace. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a threat to himself and others. So somebody has got to keep that guy in hand, and I'm the only guy... You can, you know, fight against him. So I gotta go, and I gotta go to Middle Earth, and somebody, so somebody's gotta do it. And if you know Dominion comes to me, well, then okay, you know that's um, that's as it must be. That kind of rationalization, that's it strikes me as a very similar kind of flavor to the sort of rationalization that we get from people uh, who are under the influence of the Ring of Power. Um, that moment, therefore, in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, you know, her whole um, contemplation of what that path really looks like, her recognition of what her dominion of the world would actually amount to if she did it the whole um, <clears throat> in um, in place of the Dark Lord, you would have a queen uh, speech um, is also now being granted a greater significance and we are seeing that she has now finally come to realize that she's been fooling herself for thousands of years and is now free to depart. But this is not the end of the Galadriel 3.0 story. There's more to it, which we learn later on in the context of uh, the story of Amroth. 
remember, in Galadriel 2.0, Amroth was still her son, right? That is, in fact, the version in which he, the only version in which Amroth is her son. Um, so we get this much later on in the chapter in the context of the Amroth and Nimrodel stuff. But during the Third Age, Galadriel became filled with foreboding, and with Celeborn she journeyed to Lorien and stayed there long with Amroth, being especially concerned to learn all the news and rumors of the growing shadow in Mirkwood and the dark stronghold in Dol Guldur. But his people were content with Amroth. He was valiant and wise, and his little kingdom was yet prosperous and beautiful. Remember, he's not her son. He's just a Nandor prince who rules this land, um, and she is going to leave him to it. Therefore, after long journeys of inquiry in Rovanian, from Gondor to the, and the borders of Mordor to Thranduil in the north, Celeborn and Goadriel passed over the mountains to Imladris, and there dwelt for many years. For Elrond was their kinsman, since he had early in the Third Age, in the year 109, according to the Tale of Years, wedded their daughter Celebrian. Okay. We see here the same movement that we saw, the same geographic movement, at the beginning anyway, that we saw at the end of the Galadriel 2.0 story, them leaving Lorien, going back over the mountains, and living in Imladris for a while. In the 2.0 version, this was a consequence of her own sea longing, that is, of, of, of the division in Galadriel's heart. She knows the right thing to do is to stay and be vigilant against Sauron. Somebody's got to fight against Sauron. But at the same time, I really desire the sea so I'm going to go back there. Remember, that is before the ban. So it's theoretically possible that she could go, uh, it seems. But she's still choosing not to, but she really wants to, but she knows she shouldn't. That's the place where we see her living in, and that seems to be the state of mind in which she ends up in Belfalas, right? Moves to Imwitches in the first place and then ends up in Belfalas. Here, we see her doing a similar thing, but it has a very different spin. It has a very different impact, right? We see her being super vigilant against Sauron, right? She, in fact, does what almost no elf lords are described as doing, certainly in the Third Age. That is, she gets off her butt in travels. <laughs> you know, she goes on away trips uh, to try to do research and to figure out what is this threat that seems to be arising. What's going on here? But she crosses back over the Misty... She ends up crossing back over the Misty Mountains and hanging out with Elrond but she doesn't move to Belfala. She doesn't go to re- she doesn't go into retirement after the disaster in Moria in the year 1980 and the sorrows of Lorien, which was now left without a ruler, for Amroth was drowned in the sea in the Bay of Belfalas and left no heir, Celeborn and Goadriel returned to Lorien and were welcomed by the people. There they dwelt while the third age lasted, but they took no title of king or queen, for they said they were only guardians of this small but fair realm, the last eastward outpost of the elves. Um, interesting. They, there's this move, we see this move towards humility on her part. This is the same Goadriel, who was all like, I shall stand against Feanor, I shall rebel against the Valar and return to Middle-earth so I can oppose Fanor's mad desires. Um, no, no. Um, uh, she now... And notice, it's different even from from the Eregion of, of Galadriel 2.0, right? Um, they were already living. You know, they, already, they already were in Lorien, and Amroth was there. And they were like, it's okay, you, you keep it. 
right? They're not going to become the Lord and Lady. They're, you know, she is not like the, you know, the elf magnet that we saw her being in 2.0. She's backing off, right? She's not seeking dominion. She's doing the opposite of seeking dominion, right? She, she, refu- she declines any role and leaves them with Amroth and becomes a wanderer, right? Sets off on her own. Goes to live, uh, you know, in her son-in-law's house for a while. And then, um, eventually, is invited back to Lorien. And even after Amroth is dead, and she's, you know, there's no going to be, there's no longer any question of usurpation, uh, still, they, she doesn't want to be called queen. Right? So there's still this, this, uh, this element of humility. I'm just a guardian of this small but fair realm. I am certainly not seeking dominion over realms that I can rule on my own will. Right? Um, so I do think that here we see her being more humble than I think we're led to believe that she is in the in the Lord of the Rings, frankly. I think the depiction of her in the Fellowship of the Ring is less humble than this. So she was greater at the beginning. I mean, she's, you know, in the, at the beginning of Galadriel 3.0, but by the time she comes towards the end of her career, we see her already walking down the path of wisdom, which is ultimately going to culminate in her rejection, in her refusal to take the ring. Um, Diego, yes, that's why it's so striking that she uses the title queen in her ring-induced speech. Absolutely. Um, and that seems to be a deliberate point on her part. That's, that's, that's that one path, right? The queen path, which she has already turned away from, and she's going to carry on turning away from it. Right? Exactly. Um, okay, good. Um... All right, briefly, because we're already out of time, um, uh, but that's okay. Um, briefly, Galadriel 4.0. Keep in mind now it's like five years later, after, you know, it's the late 60s, he's revisiting the story, and so Galadriel, the, you know, the story of Galadriel has grown in the telling. Now um, her character has been retroactively transformed, that is back further in her history transformed. Now... Um, you know, her character, which now makes the earth shake when she walks, um, involves a, a pretty significant rewriting of the Silmarillion, at least including her, is a great deal more disruptive than it used to be. Now we have to change the whole story of the kinslaying, for instance, in order to accommodate her fighting heroically on the part of the Teleri. Now, Galadriel 4.0, we got bigger issues. She did indeed wish to depart from Valinor and go into the wide world of Middle-earth for the exercise of her talents, for, being brilliant in mind and swift in action, she had early absorbed all of what she was capable of in the teaching which the Valar thought fit to give the Eldar, and she felt confined in the tutelage of Amon. Confined in the tutelage of Amon. Goadriel is now, in Valinor mind... Uh, uh, with you know, with the gods, with with the Valar, she's like, I've learned everything you have to teach. I really need to branch out on my own here, right? Um, Valar just holding me back at this point. I'm slightly exaggerating, but not much exaggerating. She felt confined in the tutelage of Amon. This desire of Goadriel's was, it seems, known to Manway, and he had not forbidden her but nor had she been given a formal leave to depart. Okay, so, 
we have her desire to leave Valinor predating Feanor. It's not a reaction to Feanor, mind. She was our, she, she was moving out anyway. But Goadriel leaving Valinor was like, you know, a, a teenager turning 18, 19 and saying, you know what, it's time for me to move out on my own, mom and dad. She's going to go into the wide world uh, for the greater exercise of her talents uh, and to learn more on her own than the Valar had to teach her. This is still... Uh, there's some pride here, but it's not a rebellion. She is not in rebellion against the Valar. Um, they, you know, they're 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 fixing to let her go, though she hasn't been explicitly told she can go. Pondering what she might do, Galadriel's thoughts turned to the ships of the Teleri, and she went for a while to dwell with her mother's kindred in Aqualande. Hmm. Gosh, if I'm gonna go, I'm gonna need a boat. All right, I better go. Um, I better go talk to the Teleri. There she met Celeborn, who is here again a Teleran prince, the grandson of Olwe of Alqualande, and thus her close kinsman. Quite close kinsman. First cousin once removed, in fact. Um, notice, Celeborn has moved up in the world again, right? He is now there in Amman. This is, you know, we now see him not just, he's not just from Doriath anymore. Now he's moved up one more peg, and he is one of the Teleri. He is a Calaquendi now, an Elf of the Light. Um, he uh, is a much bigger deal, but she's moved up too, right? Now, she's not just merely, like, maybe a rival of, Feyen- of Feanor. Now she's, um, she seems peerless, right? I mean, this. You know, she's like, ah, uh, you know, gosh, the Valar don't have anything more to teach me. Um, okay. Um, all right, together, they planned to build a ship and sail it to Middle-earth. Sailing it to Middle-earth. And they were about to seek leave from the Valar for their venture when, uh, you know, a side, a side adventure suddenly kicked up. Uh, that is, Melkor fled from Valmar, and returning with Ungoliant, destroyed the Light of the Trees. Then, uh, hang on, very briefly, the plot of the Silmarillion intervenes, right, uh, 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 it intrudes itself upon the story of Goadriel here. In Fanor's revolt that followed the darkening of Valinor, Goadriel had no part. Indeed, she with Celeborn fought heroically in defense of Alqualande. Remember, she was living there, right? totally unrelated now. She's not opposing Fanor. Fanor is irrelevant to her, except for the fact when he comes to attack the Teleri and she fights against him again. Now, much more understandable because she's already there, right? And Celeborn's ship was saved from them. So, she won at least a partial victory. Um, uh, yeah, okay. Galadriel, despairing now of Valinor, and horrified by the violence and cruelty of Feanor, set sail into the darkness without waiting for Manway's leave, which would undoubtedly have been withheld in that hour, however legitimate her desire in itself. It was thus that she came under the ban set upon all departure, and Valinor was shut against her return, and therefore Galadriel falls under the doom of Mandos on a kind of technicality. She never rebels against the Valinor, she does leave without permission, right? She didn't get clearance from air control, air, air traffic control, to leave the harbor. Um, and probably, you know, if she had asked, he would have said no. So you could say it's a kind of rebellion, but she never actually rebelled against them. And her departure has nothing to do one way or the other with what Feanor does. She's disgusted by Feanor, uh, and she despairs of Valinor, right? Oh, it's dark here now. You know, this place is... Uh, this place is this place is done. I'm, I'm gonna beat. 
I was going to be it anyway, because I've outgrown this place. Um, but, yeah, Neil says, didn't ask for permission, just hopes for forgiveness. Seems, from the tone of it, almost to presume forgiveness, I think, perhaps. I don't know. Um, but together, with Celeborn, she reached Middle-earth somewhat sooner than Feanor. Goadrio is now the first of the Noldor to return to Middle-earth and under completely different auspices from Feanor and the others, and sailed into the haven where Círdan was lord. There they were welcomed with joy as being of the kin of Elwë Thingol. In the years after, they did not join in the war against Angband, which they judged to be hopeless under the ban of the Valar and without their aid. And their counsel was to withdraw from Beleriand and to build up a power in the eastward, whence they feared that Morgoth would draw reinforcement, befriending and teaching the dark elves and men of those regions. But such a policy, having no hope of acceptance among the elves of Beleriand, Galadriel and Celeborn departed over Arid Linden before the end of the First Age, and when they received the permission of the Valar to return into the West, they rejected it. In other words, we're back to... Galadriel 1.0 story, with a totally different backstory. Now she's once again crossing over Arid Linden, crossing over the Blue Mountains, um, into Eriador, and then towards Lorien, before the end of the first day, before the fall of Nargothrond or Gondolin, right? She is once again playing no part in the story of the Silmarillion. So you notice, by creating this much greater upheaval of the Silmarillion story, he is leaving it more intact. More violence would need to be done, in the sense of, like, pretty radical rewriting. More rewriting of the Silmarillion story would need to be done for Galadriel 3.0 than Galadriel 4.0, right? Because she she leaves, right? She comes back and she's like, look, okay, um, I have some advice, O oh, ye lesser Noldor and Thingol and all of the rest of you people. Um, give it up. Move. Let's go out east. Uh, and let's befriend and teach the dark men and elves. Let's 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 try to build up. But you know, trying to oppose Morgoth and Beleriand, this isn't going to work, people. But they're not going to listen. So she gives up and goes away and leaves them to their own devices, aka the First Age and the Silmarillion. Uh, and she goes out <clears throat> into the east, and that's where she can be found in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, There we are. Um, this keeps her more unstained. Notice she doesn't have... Um, even though she seems like she still has some pride issues, apart from this simple fact that he states when they received the permission of the Valar to return into the West, they rejected it. We're not told anything more about that. That's the only place where a sort of a negative judgment is placed upon her, that we have some fairly clear evidence <clears throat> that she was guilty of pride and that it was leading her to make bad choices. It's not obvious that any of her other choices are bad choices. Um, her departure from Valinor might have been rash, perhaps, but it wasn't a bad choice in the way that her self-deluded I'm going to oppose Thanor and be a force for... No, really, I'm going to be a force for good in Middle-earth decision to leave Valinor and rebel against the, the Valar was clearly a, a bad call on her part. 
We don't have any of those things, except, again, perhaps her rejection of the permission of the Valar to return into the West, though we're not told anything about that. So we get a much more sort of morally monolithic um, uh, version of Goadriel here, which I have to say I find much less interesting. Um, the Galadriel 3.0 version, as I think, is really interesting. I think it's really cool. And I think it plays together with the themes that we see elsewhere in Tolkien's work, work both in the Silmarillion and in the Lord of the Rings, very, very nicely. Um, this does not seem to me to do the same thing. Um, uh, it does m- maintain the integrity of the Silmarillion, but it does, you know, Roy, I agree with you. Roy says, this belittles all the Elvish lords fighting Morgoth. Yeah, um, it preserves the integrity of the Silmarillion at the expense of belittling the whole thing, right? So, you know, this in the Silmarillion you can read about the, like, pointless, fruitless uh, attempt of the elves to do what Galadriel told them was impossible if only they'd listened to her. Um, it's, uh, I, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's a little bit sad. Um, she's more distant, much more distant, more incalculable. In that way, kind of like the Lord of the Rings, Galadriel. In some ways, I think uh, it seems to be one of the effects here. Um, and watch me attempting to avoid crit fix. See, you know what I was tempted to say? Was, we can see here Tolkien really wanting to bring the Galadriel story much more closer into line with the Lord of the Rings story here. But that would be crit fix, wouldn't it? Instead, what I shall say is, um, the Galadriel in this story does seem to be more closely into line, does seem to be coming back to the Lord of the Ring, to the Lord of the Rings, Galadriel. Um, there's this kind of boomerang motion, right, where we we start with the Lord of the, the Lord of the Rings, Galadriel in 1.0, and then as we take that character and look backwards and say, how would that character fit into these other stories? If that character were there, what would it look like? We get 2.0. Then we ramp her up a little bit more, and we get 3.0. Now we ramp her up even further. But at the same time, come back to a Galadriel, which is much closer to the Lord of the Rings story, and even whose plot is more similar to the Lord of the Rings story. Now, she's again not connected to Eregion, she's not connected uh, to uh, Doriath before the fall of Nargothrond or Gondolin. Yeah. Um... Well, I should let you go. Um, I did have a couple notes I wanted to make about Thranduil as well, um, as I couldn't pass by without talking about those. But I'll save those, and I'll try to remember to come back to those um, in our next uh, bonus Q&A session. But... um, uh, Roy says, can we take these differing versions as existing within the secondary world or as different historical accounts? Yeah, well, Roy, if we go back to that first paragraph, um, you know, that first passage I quoted from Christopher Tolkien, to stop looking at it and to look along it instead, what we would say are, 
here are variants historical you know here are variants in the historical record um, variants which can't really be reconciled with each other somebody's version of the Galadriel story must be wrong right these are, can't all be true um, and one could easily come up with it doesn't seem that Tolkien did this um, but one could easily come up with frameworks right for each one of these accounts um uh, you know, I'm thinking Galadriel 3.0 is probably the legend of Galadriel that Gimli left behind him, right? I mean, we 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 could totally come up with uh, uh, with backstories uh, for the sort of textual history and 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 derivation of these different accounts. Doing this is just pure fiction on our part, uh, uh, fan fiction, not crit fiction. Um, I. You know, we don't have any evidence of that. Um, but that's kind of what um, uh, that's that's kind of what uh, uh, we sort of have to do to look at it in that way, Roy, from that perspective of within the secondary world. Um, and because we have to totally invent it ourselves, that's why I didn't want to do that today, and instead be focusing at the looking at and thinking about these different versions that Tolkien himself is conceiving of through the years. Um, uh, as he goes along rethinking uh, and dwelling on the Galadriel story. We're going to see a similar kind of thing. Um, I want to come back to the Galadriel, the, the, the progress of Galadriel's development when we look at the Astari essay. Because I think looking at um, Tolkien's later contemplations of Gandalf, we can, <clears throat> I think, see some similarities to... Tolkien's later contemplations of Galadriel um, that we're getting here. But um, uh, I'll save the Thrain Duel notes. Um, let me end with one quick announcement. Uh, Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time is our next episode of Riddles in the Dark that is going to be coming this week. Um, you should join, you can find the, the, the Riddles in the Dark page uh, on the Mythgard homepage, uh, and you can find our link there, the registration link for. Riddles in the Dark. Our topic this week is action and violence. Many people have made lots of comments about the action sequences and the greatly increased violence um, in uh, that increased from the book um, in Peter Jackson's Hobbit films. Um, and I think this is the most substantive criticism of the of the movies, but. Also, I think that it's something that I haven't seen explored in really great detail. It's a comment that people tend to make, and I think it's a very valid comment, but I haven't really heard people really dig into it and think through its implications. Um, think carefully about the way that Jackson is treating it. Think carefully about the way that Tolkien treated those things, and then looking at how those two things work together. So that's what we're going to be talking about in Riddles in the Dark this week. I invite you uh, to join us if you have a chance, and uh, we'll be, of course, posting the recording if you can't make it. Um, my uh, passages on Thranduil, by the way, were going to be my sort of transition into that announcement, as I think that there are several things of <clears throat> Peter Jackson film interest in the uh, snippets that we get about Thranduil here uh, near the very end in one of the appendices of the uh, Galadriel and Celeborn chapter. But, as I say, I will uh, I will come to that later. Um, Annie's asking, is there a schedule for when the podcasts come out on iTunes? Uh, if you mean of this... Um, 
uh, of this episode, uh, of this class, um, that they should be coming tonight or tomorrow. The Riddles in the Dark take a little bit longer. Um, uh, oh, of The Riddles in the Dark. Yeah, there's not a very definite schedule. Um, I, I, my production team, which is mostly Trish and Laura, um, work on those, um, and they post those up as quickly as they can. Um, I try to get these links up very quickly um, so that people can listen to it to be prepared for uh, for next week's class. Um, but uh, we have a little bit more leeway with Riddles in the Dark, so it's not quite so urgent. Um, but anyway, um, Don asks, what about the lost episode of the Silmarillion Seminar? Dime tells me two minutes ago that it just posted. So go to my podcast feed, Don, and download it. Because apparently it's there. This is I, I haven't confirmed this myself, but the word on the street is that it's there. So the final, the lost reunion episode of the Summerlin Seminar. So, okay, I have another announcement that I didn't even know about. Um, uh, uh, apparently. Okay, Dime says she actually has the recording in her possession, so there we go. Um, so here's unexpected, spontaneous announcement. Go to... Uh, go to my podcast feed and you will find the lost episode, well, no, not the lost, the redone episode of, uh, of the, uh, the Summerlin Seminar. Anyway, thank you everybody for joining me. Uh, this has been a, uh, a really fun discussion. Um, next week we will move on. We'll start the Third Age next week. Um, and look at Isildur, another one of those characters that, we, that uh, Tolkien is coming back to after a delay, and who will look a little bit different than he looked uh, in his Lord of the Rings appearances. So, thanks very much, everybody, and I will see you guys next week, or if not Friday. Thanks very much. Bye.